campus cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. As you know, this episode is rated a 5. This is part 2 of the story of Matthew Shepard, an openly gay 21-year-old college student at the University of Wyoming. In October of 1998, Matthew was brutally beaten and then bound and tied to a fence post on the outskirts of Laramie, Wyoming. His attackers left him there to die, tied to that fence in extremely cold temperatures for at least 18 hours. Although Matthew was found alive and taken to a hospital in Colorado the next day, he succumbed to his injuries and died five days later, on October 12, 1998. His murder was quickly deemed one of the nation's most heinous hate crimes because of a narrative that began circulating that he was targeted because of his sexual orientation, because he was a gay man flirting with straight men in a bar. During their trial, Matthew's killers, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, maintained that they killed him to teach him a lesson not to hit on straight men and that the sole reason for the killing was because of Matthew's sexual orientation. But in this second part of Chronicle 34, I'd like to introduce a theory to you that might help explain Matthew's story in a different way, essentially in a little more detail that goes far beyond the simple fact that Matthew was a gay man in the middle of Wyoming, USA. I do want to warn you, though, that it doesn't necessarily paint Matthew in the best light, at least that's some people's opinion. It's what they have criticized about it and said over the years. But in my opinion, this part of the story, or this potential part of the story, I should say, doesn't do that to Matthew at all. Instead, I think it shows the humanity in Matthew, that he was a normal person who had struggles and problems as much as everyone else did. So that's the lens I choose to look through, and I'd like for you, the listeners, to look through that same lens as I'm diving further into the story. Because Regardless, Matthew was an amazing person who deserves justice and for his full story to be heard. Struggles, demons, trauma, and all. And those are the exact same thoughts that investigative journalist Stephen Jimenez had when he began looking further into Matthew's story. In 2013, Jimenez released a book titled The Book of Matt, The Real Story of the Murder of Matthew Shepard. According to The Guardian, Jimenez argues in the book that anti-gay hatred was not the primary motivation for Matt's murder, if it was a factor at all. You see, Jimenez, who is a gay man himself, set out to understand Matthew as a complex human being and to make the fullest sense of the murder, basically exactly what I was thinking in the last episode or in the in part one of this episode, that there just seems like there's more to the story. He simply wanted to dig a little deeper for the truth, if the truth was something other than a hate crime. When he started, Jimenez said he was convinced that Matthew died at the hands of extremely homophobic men. But after Jimenez spent over 13 years researching, investigating, and interviewing over 100 people, including those closest to the case, 
such as both murderers and their former girlfriends, as well as friends of Matthew and police investigators. And afterward, he ultimately discovered that there was much more to Matthew's killing, and it did not involve his sexual orientation really in any way. According to an article in The Guardian by Andrew Gumbel, Jimenez makes a persuasive case that drugs and even money were the real motives behind the murder and that all three men, Matthew Shepard, Aaron McKinney, and Russell Henderson, were involved in Laramie's crystal meth subculture as users and dealers. Jimenez further argues that Aaron McKinney and Matthew knew each other before their encounter in the bar that night, the night Matthew was attacked. He also suggests that Matthew and McKinney may have even had a casual sexual relationship. I'll come back around to that a little bit later, but I do want to point out that a police investigator who worked the case backs up at least part of Jimenez's theory. According to The Guardian, police investigator Ben Fritzen said, quote, Shepard's sexual preference certainly wasn't the motive in the homicide. What it came down to, really, is drugs and money, end quote. Furthermore, in Jimenez's book, he traces a history of depression, heavy drinking, crystal meth and heroin use, and sexual acts, including rape and molestation, all part of what Matthew had experienced or been a part of. This does add up because, according to ABC News, some of Matthew's friends said he was a troubled young man when he first enrolled at the University of Wyoming in the fall of 1998. One of his friends, Tina Labrie, told ABC News in 2004 that Matt was depressed, which might have spurred his involvement with drugs. Apparently, he told Labrie, quote, Everywhere I move, it seems like I get sucked into the drug scene, end quote. However, Matthew's depression was fueled by an incredibly traumatic experience. In high school, in 1995, Matthew traveled to Morocco, but while there, he was beaten and gang-raped. After that, Matthew was not really the same, and he experienced periods of depression. His mother, Judy Shepard, told ABC News, quote, It made him pull within himself. He became withdrawn. Depression, panic attacks. End quote. Plus, before Matthew's murder, he had found out some other traumatic news and wasn't sure what to do with it or how to process it. ABC News reported that a limo driver in Laramie, Tom O'Connor, who was simply known as Doc, sometimes drove Matthew and his friends and acquaintances around in town. O'Connor told ABC News that just days before Matthew's death, he had told O'Connor that he was HIV positive and that he was contemplating suicide. And y'all, Matthew was indeed HIV positive. Remember Reggie Flutie in part one? Flutie was the police officer who responded to the 911 call about Matthew being tied to the fence. Well, according to reenactment in the Laramie Project, which, remember, was performed verbatim from transcripts with Laramie residents, but according to the Laramie Project, the hospital called Flutie a few days after and told her that not only was Matthew HIV positive, but that she had been exposed to it as well. She explained that she had a bunch of small open cuts on her hands from like working on a farm with llamas and she had gotten Matthew's blood on her hands. She said she kept putting on gloves, but they kept breaking and tearing. Immediately after the hospital notified Flutie of her exposure, she was put on an aggressive post-exposure medical routine, including AZT drugs, which if started within 36 hours of exposure, can stop someone from getting the disease. 
Ultimately, and thankfully, she later tested negative for HIV. But let's circle back around to Stephen Jimenez's book and some of his suggestions of the truth. Apparently, Aaron McKinney had been coming down from a week-long meth binge when the murder occurred. At the time, McKinney was desperate to pay off his mounting debt, and he believed Matthew could lead him to a meth delivery coming in from Denver, which was worth about $10,000. That night, he intended to steal the large shipment of drugs. His plan, though, was to beat the information out of Matthew until he told him exactly where the drugs were. But, according to Jimenez's book, the beating, fueled by severe drug-induced paranoia, got out of control, and then, well, it ended the way it did, with Matthew tied to the fence and left for dead. This part of Jimenez's book can be backed up in interviews that both McKinney and Henderson did with Elizabeth Vargas for 2020 back in 2004. McKinney said when he encountered Matthew at the bar that night, he saw an easy target because Matthew was dressed well and McKinney assumed that, at the very least, he probably had a lot of cash on him. His plan the whole night was to rob a drug dealer, Matt for instance, who could take him to the shipment of drugs. Even Henderson, who interviewed with Vargas separately, said this was McKinney's plan the whole time. Henderson said, though, that he thought if he could keep McKinney drinking, McKinney would forget the robbery plan altogether. But unfortunately, that didn't work. Instead, McKinney targeted Matthew at the bar that night. Then, Matthew eventually told McKinney that he was too drunk to drive home, and he asked him for a ride. Now, even though McKinney told police that he pulled the pistol out and beat Matthew with it when Matthew tried to make a move on him inside the pickup truck, McKinney told Vargas, quote, I was getting ready to pull it on him anyway, end quote. McKinney also told Vargas on 2020 that he asked for and got Matthew's wallet, which, as we went over in part one, only had at the most maybe $30 inside, and he continued to beat Matthew with the gun. So during the 2020 interview, when Vargas asked McKinney why he continued to beat Matthew, even though he handed over his money already, McKinney said, quote, Sometimes when you have that kind of rage going through you, there's no stopping it. I've attacked my best friends coming off meth binges, end quote. McKinney also admitted to Vargas that he had a serious methamphetamine problem by the time he was 18. In the days leading up to Matthew's death, McKinney was using meth every day, and he had been on a binge for at least a week before, the whole time being awake and never sleeping. After beating Matthew and leaving him tied to the fence, Matthew took his wallet and shoes before getting back in the truck and instructing Henderson to drive to town. They were actually headed to Matthew's apartment so they could burglarize it. Hence why they left him tied to the fence instead of letting him go. At least, that's what makes sense to me. According to ABC News, when they parked the truck, they encountered two young men that night. But ABC News does not identify them. However, Jimenez's book does identify them as Emiliano Morales and Jeremy Herrera, who were slashing tires and vandalizing cars for fun. This, of course, led to an argument and altercation between the four men. And for the second time that night, McKinney went apeshit into full-on attack mode. McKinney ended up cracking open Morales's head with the same gun he used to beat Matthew. Oh, and just a side note, one of McKinney's former acquaintances and another person in the drug scene, well, he used to be in the drug scene, he, he's not anymore, but his name is Ryan Bopp. 
and he said that McKinney had recently traded him one gram of meth in exchange for the gun he would ultimately use to beat both Matthew and Morales. Anyway, ABC News reported McKinney struck the man so hard with that gun that his skull was fractured. Then the injured man's friend retaliated, slamming McKinney in the head with a small bat. All four men fled in different directions as Sergeant Flint Waters was arriving to the scene. According to Jimenez's book, Sergeant Waters chased and grabbed Henderson, who led him to the truck, the gun, and Matthew's shoes and credit cards. Sergeant Waters later told The Guardian in 2014, quote, I believe to this day that McKinney and Henderson were trying to find Matthew's house so they could steal his drugs. It was fairly well known in the Laramie community that McKinney wouldn't be one that was striking out of a sense of homophobia. Some of the officers I worked with had caught him in a sexual act with another man, so it didn't fit. None of that made any sense, end quote. It was well known, allegedly, that McKinney was not homophobic because in Jimenez's book, he includes at least a dozen sources who had seen Matthew and McKinney together before. Although McKinney has never admitted to it, 2020 also interviewed several sources who said the two men were not strangers. Ryan Bopp, a friend of McKinney's whom I mentioned earlier, said he had seen Matthew and McKinney together at parties. A bartender who knew both Matt and McKinney said she too had seen them together. She told 2020 that when she heard about the beating and murder, she recalled thinking, quote, it's either money or dope. Yeah, he'd be the perfect target, especially because Aaron knew him, end quote. Similarly, another resident of Laramie, Elaine Baker, told 2020 that she also saw McKinney and Matt together in a social situation. Apparently, several weeks before the murder, Baker spent a night on the town in one of Doc O'Connor's limos with a group of people, which included both young men, both Matthew Shepard and Aaron McKinney. Now, whether they knew each other or not, McKinney admitted on 2020 that he did not target Matthew because he was gay. He admitted this after Elizabeth Vargas directly asked him. He said, quote, no, I did not. I would say it wasn't a hate crime. All I wanted to do was beat him up and rob him, end quote. And, of course, the drugs played a huge part in why McKinney beat Matthew so aggressively. Not homophobia. Actually, a professor at UCLA who studied the link between meth and violence, Dr. Rick Rawson, told 2020 that methamphetamine can and does trigger episodes of violent behavior. Even McKinney's former girlfriend, and from my understanding, the mother of his child, Kristen Price, told Vargas that McKinney's motive was money and drugs. She said, quote, I don't think it was a hate crime at all. I never did, end quote. However, some are skeptical of this statement because she initially told police and the media that it was a gay hate crime and that McKinney despised gay people and didn't want to be around them. To explain these previous comments, though, Price told Vargas that she said those things because she thought it might make things easier for McKinney, or at the very least, he would maybe get a lesser charge or sentence if his violence was seen as a panic reaction to an unwanted gay sexual advance, you know, rather than involving a manic, drug-induced rage beating and killing. Also, FYI, Price, too, was charged with felony accessory after the fact to first-degree murder, but she later pleaded guilty to a reduced misdemeanor charge of interference with police officers. 
I'm assuming it's because she lied to police initially or maybe tried to cover something up for McKinney, but I couldn't find anything that specifically explained that. Anyway, former police detective Ben Fritzen, one of the lead investigators in the case, also interviewed with Vargas. He too firmly believes that robbery was the primary motive. Similar to what he told The Guardian in 2014, he told 2020 in 2004, so 10 years prior, he said, quote, Matthew Shepard's sexual preference or sexual orientation certainly wasn't the motive in the homicide. If it wasn't Shepard, they would have found another easy target. What it came down to, really, is drugs and money and two punks that were out looking for it, end quote. So the big question is then, if it wasn't ultimately a hate crime, then why were so many people led to believe it was? Why did McKinney claim basically that exact thing in his trial? Why lie? Either way, he killed him. So why lie about the motive? Well, there are explanations for that too. Let's start with McKinney's defense, because his defense basically solidified everything that the media were saying, referring to it as a hate crime. According to ABC News, his defense of displaying a strong aversion to homosexuality was a tactic that his lawyer had cooked up for trial. His lawyer developed a type of gay panic defense, even though the judge said he couldn't use the gay panic defense specifically. So instead, his lawyer painted a picture that McKinney had suffered homosexual abuse as a child. So he overreacted when he was placed in that situation again. Basically, his lawyer argued that Matthew's sexual advance triggered the violent attack and murder. Now, we all know how that defense ended up. The jury didn't buy it at all and found him guilty of all charges, as they should have. On the other side, though, in the public, there are a few distinct reasons why the media was quick to label it a hate crime. For starters, according to Jimenez's book, two of Matthew's friends, Alex Trout and Walt Bolden, told the media repeatedly that Matthew was attacked because he was gay. However, neither one of them had any type of direct knowledge of the crime or specific facts of the crime scene. According to The Guardian, Walt Bolden was a 46-year-old college professor, and he and Trout contacted the Associated Press, as well as a number of local gay organizations, and they wanted to make sure that the public knew Matthew was targeted because of his sexual orientation. I guess simply because that's what they suspected. But The Guardian reported that Bolden later said that a police officer had identified it as a hate crime, which is why they pushed that so hard in the media. Regardless, in Jimenez's book, he argues that the media had a distorting effect and played a role in mythologizing Matthew and discouraging deeper inquiries into what really happened and why it happened. Jimenez suggests that it's just easier to understand and accept that an over-trusting gay man faced grave danger in the middle of macho cowboy country rather than, you know, the alternative of what could have quite possibly been the motive. So we've already established that Matthew and McKinney likely knew each other, or at the very least knew of each other. But let's come back around to Jimenez claiming that Matthew and Aaron McKinney may have had a casual sexual relationship. You see, even though Jimenez discussed it in his book and even suggested that both men may have been pimped out for drugs and money, the information he was ultimately presenting wasn't necessarily new, to be honest. 
The information Jimenez described in his book was similar to what Elizabeth Vargas had already uncovered in 2004 when she interviewed sources for the 2020 episode. For instance, in her interview with the limousine driver, Doc O'Connor, he said he had known McKinney for years. McKinney would often party in O'Connor's limos, and at one point, McKinney and his girlfriend even lived in an apartment on O'Connor's property. O'Connor told 2020 that he had never, ever heard McKinney express any type of anti-gay attitudes or beliefs. In fact, O'Connor said he thinks McKinney may even be bisexual. He said, quote, I know of an instance where he had a three-way, two guys and one gal, because he did it with me. I know he's bisexual. There ain't no doubt in my mind. He is bisexual, end quote. Now, although Vargas specifically asked McKinney in his interview if he had ever had sexual encounters with other men, and although McKinney denied it and told her no, that's not what McKinney's former girlfriend, Price, told Vargas. In her interview, Price explained that she believes McKinney may have been bisexual as well. Price said, quote, He was always into trying to talk me into having a three-way with one of his guy friends, end quote. When Jimenez's book was released in 2013, it sparked national backlash, and he had his fair share of critics who attacked the information he displayed. I'm not sure if the 2020 interview from 2004 sparked any critics, even though it basically uncovered similar information as what Jimenez did in his book. Still, there are people who are unwavering in their belief that Matthew Shepard was the target of a hate crime simply because he was gay, which is why the book received so much backlash. According to The Guardian, some of Jimenez's readings to promote the book were even boycotted. Two people who hold steadfast to the belief that Matthew was targeted because of his sexual orientation and his murder was the result of hate are his parents, Dennis and Judy Shepard. And their foundation in his honor, the Matthew Shepard Foundation, accused Jimenez of, quote, factual errors, rumors, and innuendos, end quote, in order to build a conspiracy theory. However, Jimenez responded to this in The Guardian, saying, quote, We have enshrined Matthew's tragedy as passion play and folktale, but hardly ever for the truth of what it was, or who he was, much to our own diminishment, end quote. Regardless, Matthew's story, his brutal attack and murder, will always be remembered, and good things have happened for the gay community since. The Laramie Project has toured the U.S. and many other countries as well, telling Matt's story and advocating against bigotry and homophobia. And there have been tons of documentaries and dramas and books based on Matthew's story as well. In addition, the Matthew Shepard Foundation continues to help fund educational programs to this day, and it still provides an online community for teens to discuss sexual orientation and gender identity. Most recently, in October of 2018, 20 years after Matthew's murder, his remains were interred at the Washington National Cathedral. If you aren't familiar with it, the Washington National Cathedral is located in D.C. It's deemed a house of prayer for all people. According to its official website, cathedral.org, quote, As the Cathedral of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, we strive to serve God and our neighbors as agents of reconciliation, a trusted voice of moral leadership, and a sacred space where the country gathers during moments of national significance, end quote. According to BBC News, Matthew now rests alongside former President Woodrow Wilson, Helen Keller, and Harvey Milk. Milk was a prominent gay politician from San Francisco who was assassinated in 1978. 
In addition, in 2018, a collection of Matthew's personal belongings were put on display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. Donated by his family, the belongings included in the display are Matthew's schoolwork, theater scripts, photos, and even his sandals. So, it's safe to say that Matthew Shepard's story and his legacy will be forever remembered. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 34. But before I go, I would really love it if you guys could please rate my podcast, review it on Apple iTunes, share it with others, tell others about it. Basically, just help me get the word out (laughs) because my podcast is growing slowly but surely. But did I mention it's still happening very slowly? (laughs) So there are at least 700 of you that listen each week. So if you guys shared it with just one other person, that number would double to 1,400. So help me out by sharing this podcast, reviewing it. You know, right now I only have 73 reviews on Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I should say. But if each one of you reviewed it, if you have, you know, if, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, then y'all, that would be like 500 to 700 reviews and it would literally spread the word. So y'all help me out. Just let others know that this podcast is available and that it's out there. Help me grow my audience because that's what I need from y'all. So every two weeks, I love giving you these stories and, you know, bringing awareness to stuff that colleges and universities deal with. I love bringing these stories to you, but I really need to grow the podcast. That's my next step. That's my next goal. So I know y'all are amazing. I have some great listeners. So y'all share it with just one other person. Help me double my listeners, um, the number of listeners that I have. And yeah, let's keep going. (laughs) Okay, y'all, as always, be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. You can reach me by email if you really want to and say hi at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to check out my TikTok. Keep checking it out if you have already for some additional campus crime stories that, you know, you may or may not have heard before. Okay, y'all. Well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. The cover art and logos for this podcast were designed by Brady Burns. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.